This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Joe Olson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Hello, my friend. I <laughs> uh, had an absolutely wonderful experience on Friday night. There's a place, uh, an event center out west of Austin in a little town called Bee Caves, and the name of it's Star Hill. And there was an event that was put on by a group called Texas Nexus. And Del Bigtree was there, who I've met at three or four different events. I talked to him. He's very willing to be a guest on TNT. And then I also met the producer of Pandemic 1, 2, and this was the launch for Pandemic 3. And the uh, director of that was Mickey Willis. And he was there. I had a great time talking with him. Uh, while he wasn't looking, I danced with both of his sisters-in-law. So. <laughs> so that's another. And I also met an attorney, which I will keep nameless at this particular point. But that attorney is the one who was putting together information for criminal convictions of this um, medical mafia here in Texas. And he's working with uh, David Martin. So he said he'd get uh, me in touch with David Martin, but then also he's going to get me in touch with about a dozen attorneys that are working on prosecutions all across the state of Texas. And there's a criminal code, um, Texas Court uh, Code of Criminal Procedures, uh, Article 1509 that says that any magistrate can uh, convene a grand jury just based on a citizen's complaint. So we do have a mechanism here in Texas and we've got 254 counties and I guarantee you somebody has been killed by this medical mafia in every one of those counties. And you don't have to count on the county DA who may be honest and you don't have to count on the county sheriff who may be honest. You can go to any JP in the state of Texas and say, Here's the evidence that the hospital put my relative on remdesivir and put stuck a ventilator in him and killed him. And here's the uh, clinical evidence that proves that that protocol is in fact deathly. And so uh, it looks like we're going to be able to kick off some grand juries. And once you start subpoenaing people and getting more physical evidence, then it will be unavoidable for all of the attorney generals in Texas and the uh, state attorney general to go ahead and start filing charges. So I'm excited about that. COVID's but obviously today, a false flag. Oh, yeah, abs absolutely. <laughs> and and the, the thing is, you have to realize these people are so expert at false flags, and they've been doing them for centuries, and they've had the ability to control the information so that they're able to cover them up and then create a whole new normal. And so uh, probably... One of the more historic things would be the Trojan horse <laughs> where they, uh, you know, that's a, definitely a false flag. It's like, oh, they love horses. Well, let's give them a big horse and we'll give them a horse full of Greeks, you know. <laughs> false flag. What is it? Okay. False flag is when you pretend to be on either a neutral side or the same side as your enemy until you get close enough with their defenses down where you can attack them. So typically it applied to sailing vessels where it's real easy to strike colors and say you were a neutral nation or strike colors saying that, that I'm actually a friendly. And then when you pull up beside them, then you go ahead and open up with the guns and your, all your pirates come over. And, and this was actually legalized in uh, the U, uh, UK. It was issued as letters of mark by the crown 
between 1293 until 1856. So if you have uh, an inferior Navy, what you need to do is you need to get privateers who can take merchant ships, convert them into warships, go sail across the ocean and pull up next to the Spanish galleon and steal the galleon and all of the gold. So that's what they were doing. And that's, it's actually was such an important thing for underpowered nations that it's written into the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, that the Congress can issue letters of mark and reprisal. And that law is still constitutional. So, you know, if we can get a Congress that says, hey, let's go after Big Pharma because they ripped us off, then presto, we can uh, do uh, letters of mark and reprisal against all of their assets. So they're pirates. And if, you, if you're going to be a pirate, you might as well get, you know, pirate treatment. So, so false flags but, have been around for a long time. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But we, we can't cover all of them in history, mm. but we'll start with some of the major ones like uh, the USS Maine. And I sent you a clip this morning about mm. the USS Maine that had a uh, PBS about five minute long introduction into the um, explosion on the USS Maine. These were early generation steamships. They were pushing the limit of their technology. Uh, you're running 350 PSI steam. You can cut through steel with that if you're not careful and you don't know how to make all the valves and the return lines and the boiler controls and so basically these were experimental boats the main was laid down i think in 1881 and then blew up in uh, 1898 so it was 11 year old vessel and the technology had already surpassed the technology on that boat so it was obsolete probably from the day that it was made but it was certainly obsolete 11 years later they took it down to Cuba because Americans had been doing a lot of investment in Cuba uh, after a number of revolutions. And the PBS thing does a good description of that. So we'll link to that and people can get an idea about all of the stuff that was going on. But basically somebody who was formerly in the Spanish military and grew up and lived in uh, Dominican Republic, transferred over to Cuba, got in with a bunch of the Cuban refugees and said, hey, the way to beat the Spanish is to burn down every one of the sugar mills in, in Cuba. So they, they burnt most of the Cuba, uh, and that was the main cash crop that kept the Spanish colony going. And the United States wanted to take Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Philippines from Spain because that was the last of their colonial empires, and the United States desperately wanted to be a colonial empire. And we've overthrown at least 75 governments in Latin America in the last 150 years. So we're experts at, at creating banana republics. And the funny thing is what goes around comes around. Now we're living in a banana republic. So anyhow, the boat was um, destroyed from explosions inside. And the excuse they gave is that it uh, a mine hit it and just happened to hit where the forward magazine was. And then it blew out the the side of the boat and it sank in the harbor. And they raised the boat in 1912 to see if they could figure out what had happened to it. And when you have an explosion, you always have the curling away from the metal, particularly on a boat, away from the blast site. So if you can trace where the curls are, you can pretty much pinpoint where the blast came from. And that's more important when we get to Lusitania. But anyhow, so the uh, they raised the boat they did an inspection, took some photos, which are not available any longer, and then they drug the thing out 
to a uh, giant sea rift that's outside of Cuba and dropped it in a 2,000-foot uh, gash in the ocean out there. It's sort of like the uh, wall that's at Cayman Islands, if people are familiar with that. But some people did go out with remote diving equipment and take remote uh, pictures of it, and they seemed to think that the blast occurred in the area where the boiler was, which would be what would happen if you had a steam failure. So moving along, we then had the loose, uh, the Titanic, which you did a great uh, presentation with uh, Mr. Hammer, H-A-M-E-R, uh, who's an English historian. Absolutely unequivocal, the boat that was sunk was the Olympic, and the boat had had four previous collisions. I didn't know about all four of them, but I did know about the uh, HMS Hawk, which it ran into off the Isle of Wight and bent the keel. And the keel is the most important part of the boat. The boat was underinsured, and so the the J.P. Morgan Group was going to be faced with doing all of the repair charges or just scrapping a vessel that had never earned any income in its whole whole life. And so the millions of dollars, uh, millions of pounds at that particular time that were invested in that boat were going to be lost. And so what they did is they switched the name tags. And I've seen another documentary that uh, goes into more detail, but the name of the ship was actually cast into the plates on the front of this ship. And then yeah. when they, when they um, had to switch the names, they just put plaques and rivet them on top of that. And some of the bollard photos showed the rivets had rusted through and one of the plaques was hanging down and you could very <laughs> easily see Olympic underneath the Titanic. So there's enormous amount of evidence and the evidence that he presented is not, you know, we don't need to repeat much of it other than to say that was an intentional effort to kill the three major banking forces in the world that were opposed to the creation of the Federal Reserve. So it sank in 1912, the Federal Reserve was passed in 1913. The Federal Reserve was necessary to create World War I. To create World War I, they also uh, deliberately sank the Lusitania. And there's information on that at J. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jackal Island. The Lord of the Admiralty was Sir Winston Churchill. And uh, he had telegraphed, yeah, isn't that strange? He had telegraphed the Lusitania's uh, destroyer escort to abandon the Lusitania and for the Lusitania to proceed to port at half speed. Now, this was on a clear day with calm seas in the Irish Sea, just west of uh, England. And the Germans at that point in 1914 only had 18 submarines. And the problem with getting submarines past all the submarine nets and the mines and into harbor and then to clean them out and to refuel them and restock them with food and then put the crews back on meant that they could never have more than a third of their fleet on station at any particular time. So out of the whole world, there was only going to be six operational German submarines. They knew that there was a German submarine in that area, and they intentionally let the boat be uh, torpedoed. Now, the Lusitania was built in violation of the Light Cruiser Treaty, and it had magazines and it had gun mounts that were covered up with wooden decks, and it was uh, issued as a passenger ship, but they could very easily come in and strip off the teak planking on the decks and, and take away the 
fold up lounge chairs. And next thing you know, they could drop in gun turrets and they had the magazines and everything necessary to make it a functional warship. It had been in New York Harbor and the Germans had lots of spies in New York Harbor. They posted a notice in the New York Times, do not take the Lusitania. It's being loaded with war materials as a neutral country ship owned by J.P. Morgan, who owned the Titanic and the Olympic. It's just so a coincidence. Oh, it's it's a very coincidental. But <laughs> anyhow, so so they loaded it with 173 tons of uh, war material, artillery shells and gun cotton and all kinds of things like that. And so the boat's chugging along. Calm seas, uh, middle of the afternoon, sunny day. The Germans pull up, go, well, let's put a hole in this one because the Germans already knew that that boat had been loaded with material and it was published in the New York Times. Ad, do not take the Lusitania. So, so they uh, sent one torpedo. It hit a forward hole. Now, on a steam-powered ship, the only place you can hit them with a torpedo, a single torpedo, and cause the ship to sink would be to hit the uh, boiler, and that's located in, in the aft portion of the boat. And so the single torpedo hit the front hull. There was witness testimony that there was multiple secondary explosions. The boat sank an enormously short period of time, killed 180 people. So, you know, there was Americans aboard. I don't remember what the exact death count is, but, you know, all that stuff's available online. And so... Then they uh, tried to get United States involved in the war, but Americans were real reluctant to get involved in European wars because most Americans had been Europeans, and a lot of them came to America to get away from being in perpetual monarch-driven wars. And so there was a very big anti-war movement, and Woodrow Wilson, when he ran and was um, elected in uh, 1916, his motto was, he kept us out of the war, wink, wink. So anyhow, uh, amazingly enough, I was taking scuba diving lessons in the early 70s, and I had a scuba diver magazine, and some divers had gone over and located the wreck of the Lusitania. It was in about 200 feet of water that was somewhat murky. They went down and took several rolls of film, and they were published on Skin Diver magazine, and they showed the bottom of the ocean littered with uh, war debris. And so as soon as that happened, the Royal Navy cordoned off that section of the Irish Sea for three weeks, and they went down and dynamited the boat. So you no longer have proof that the explosions occurred from the inside and ripped the metal on the outside of the boat, other than just the photos that were in Skin Diver magazine. And I'm sure those are not available online, so you'd have to go to the National Archives or the you know, National Library in order to dig up the actual photos of what the Lusitania looked like as it sat on the bottom. The Royal Navy said it was a hazard to navigation. Well, yeah, it probably was because there was a few fishing nets that were stuck around it, but I guarantee you that a, a World War I bomb from 200 feet deep is not going to be a hazard to shipping. And so that was just a complete ruse, but it was basically to destroy any physical evidence that could prove that that was an inside job. So there you have a false flag because what they're doing is they're sacrificing our people in order to get us into a, you know, a holy war that we need to fight. So then moving along, we had the uh, ferry Sussex, which was going back and forth between England and France. It was uh, torpedoed by a German submarine in the English Channel, and they claimed that it was uh, 
killed a whole bunch of Americans on it, but there was no documented cases of people who actually were killed in that torpedoing, and the boat continued in service until 1938. So it's hard to get a sunken ferry to keep operating, you know, for an extra 20 years, but amazingly enough, it did. So that didn't get us involved in World War One. So then they had another little stunt. They had already cut the telegraph cables between Germany and um, the rest of Europe. So Germany was relying on sending signals through the Dutch telegraph underwater cable system, and the British hacked into it. So the British um, were almost certain, concocted a scheme where they sent what was called the Zimmerman letter to the um, from the German ambassador to uh, in Mexico to the German pre- I mean to the Mexican president saying that if Mexico came in on the side of the United States we, we will gladly uh, give you back California, New Mexico, Arizona and Texas which are you know false claims in and of themselves because they never controlled those territories in any real sense but moving along so the Zimmerman letter was issued in March they, at that time, the presidential inaugurations were at the end of March because nobody wanted to be in Washington, D.C. in January. So you had your elections in November. You had uh, the uh, Electoral College in December, which was just a few people meeting in a room to verify the count. And then the inaugurations actually took place at the end of March. And so with this letter waving it in his hand, uh, the man who was elected to keep us out of the war uh suddenly decided that it was a good idea for us to get involved in World War I. So every bit of that was staged by the Milner Group. One of the people that was heavily involved in the Milner Group was a guy named uh, Herbert Hoover, who ended up being Secretary of the Interior and also, or Secretary of Commerce under Calvin Coolidge, and then also ended up uh, being president during the Depression. So he's the one that they blamed the Depression on when it happened in 1929. But Moving along, so after we got involved in World War One, they had a thing called the Belgium Relief. They boycotted the German ports, and Germany didn't have enough cropland to be able to feed themselves, so they were dependent on imports of food. And the Belgium Relief was to ship ostensibly food to Belgium, which was still self-sufficient and was neutral, and so the Belgium food was actually being diverted to the German troops in order to prolong the war. And that's what these people do. It takes them a long time to set up major wars, and then they don't want those wars to end very soon, so they just keep going, you know, everything they can do to prolong the endless war because they make an enormous amount of profit from it. They fund both sides, and then when one side's go bankrupt, and then they get the additional advantage that you don't ever have to worry about crippled veterans, orphans, and widows rising up against the monarchs, so you just need to keep harvesting your generation of alpha males every every uh, 20 years, and you can make sure that your fiefdoms will stay intact. And so that's why we've been involved in perpetual wars, is because it has multiple motives, and almost everything these people do have multiple motives. And once you figure out several of the motives and it becomes obvious that they're pulling the same stunts and doing the same things over and over to get the same exact outcome. But you would think, you would think, Joe, that people would notice. Well, that's the way they, they do things is that they have total control. 
they passed the Espionage Act in 1917, one of the very first things they did, and they they closed all German language newspapers in America. And Americans were had at least 30% had German heritage. So even if you weren't directly German, half your family was German. We had an enormous number of Germans in America. And they're a very productive uh, group of people, and that's why they needed to be taken out, because they were an industrial threat to England, who considered itself the world power at that time. Mm. England in 1900 controlled 25% of all the real estate on the planet. The sun never set on the empire because it was an empire of pirates. You know, they'd been doing uh, letters of mark for centuries and stealing stealing everything they could. Currently, the crown owns 6.6 billion acres of land, which is over 10% of Earth's land mass. So uh, when the queen mother croaks, uh, I'm not real upset about it because I don't consider that that's a benevolent monarch, and I don't consider that form of government to be a, a benevolent in any sense. It's never proven to be in the past. So anyhow, so moving along, um, they managed to prolong the war through the Belgian relief effort, which was run by Milner's Roundtable and, like I said, Herbert Hoover. Uh, in the meantime, they decided to uh, weaponize Japan. So uh, the European powers had been at war with Russia multiple times. Russia was invaded by Sweden in 1709. It was invaded by Napoleon in 1812. It was invaded by Britain uh, and France in the Crimea in the 1850s, and they were never able to bust the um, czarist government. So they thought, well, uh, Russia is such a vast country, they have almost no presence on their uh, east coast. And so we'll just make Japan an, a uh, military power and go ahead and attack Russia from that side. So during the Civil War, the same uh, warmongers that were in charge of the British government decided to weaponize Japan and they started selling them their old naval vessels and they invited Japanese over and did military training. They organized their whole military for them, uh, gave them modern weaponry. And in 1905, the Japanese attacked the Russians on the East Coast and they, they did a false flag there. And I think it was Port Arthur, if I'm not mistaken where they uh, claimed that the Russians had blown up a Japanese asset, and so the Japanese had an excuse to attack. So the Russians sent their <clears throat> fleet, which is icebound in the Baltic for half of the year, and the other half of the year they've got a, they've got a partial fleet down in the Crimea, but they never were a big naval power because they had limited naval access. And the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad wasn't completed until like the 1930s, so they had no way of <clears throat> actually transporting people in and out of that particular area. So the um, Japanese attacked, and in 1905, the uh, Russian fleet steamed around and was on their way to liberate the Japanese captured territory, and they got caught by a tsunami first, and while they were still reeling from the tsunami, the Japanese Navy came out with modern... British technology and sank the rest of their fleet. So that kind of set them back a little bit. Then for some reason, they managed to get sucked into World War I uh, just because of, of the inbreeding of the royals. It's like, well, you know, the Romanovs are actually cousins of the, 
of the Windsors who weren't the Windsors, who were actually cousins of, you know, so basically you have incestuous monarchs that consider their blood is blue and all the rest of us can just bleed as much as we want because it doesn't bother them. So anyhow, they managed to get sucked in by a combination of treaties into World War One, and then American bankers funded uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And once the, the Bolsheviks, they had a revolution in February of uh, 1917 called the Minkovich Revolution, and that was uh, pretty much credited to the white Russians who were tired of the czars and wanted to have land and, and social reforms, but they weren't Bolsheviks. But once they got the government overthrown, then the Bolsheviks swept in in February, I mean, in November of that year, and had the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with time because they were using, I think it was called the Octavian calendar. So it was off by about a month because they were Eastern Orthodox and their calendar was was off. So you can see two different dates on when that happened, but the dates are not really important. The stream of, of historical um Events is what's really important. Yeah, Joe, this is quite important because the Bolsheviks are never spoken about in any kind of established um, uh, academia or media um, out outlet. Uh, and that's true. And Russia, uh, let's don't demonize uh, everybody that's in this particular sect, but Russia had about 10% of its population that was Jewish. The Bolsheviks, <clears throat> by their own admission, were 90% Jewish. And so they were able to infiltrate very well because they could communicate with each other in Hebrew, which few people could understand. So basically, they had our, their own little secret code that they could uh, pass messages back and forth. And it's irrefutable that uh, Trotsky was placed on a train and, and shipped into Russia, and it's irrefutable that uh, Lenin was also placed on a train with gold and shipped out of Switzerland. And, in, and Trotsky was in New York. They, they sent him up to uh, Newfoundland, sent him over to London. He surprisingly had like $10,000 in gold and uh, Lenin had. So they basically, the U.S. and British bankers funded the Bolshevik Revolution. Then they went in, and once the Bolsheviks were installed, they bought the Russian assets at 10 cents on the dollar, which is something that they did again when the Berlin Wall fell, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So that was the cause of the Bolshevik Revolution, and then they could never make anything succeed, so they brought Americans in to do their five-year plan. So like Ford went over and built uh, a tractor and truck manufacturing facilities, and they had a five-year contract to build it, and when the contract ran out, the uh, Bolsheviks said, oh, we can run these plants now, and within five years they didn't run, and so they brought them back for another five-year plan. And then they also uh, it starved to death various reports, at least several million, but maybe as many as 30 million in the Ukraine during the Holodomor. So that's a holocaust that nobody ever talks about. Yeah, it's never spoken about but it is now. It's it's being brought out now. So you can you can actually find stuff. I'm not sure Google wants to report much of it, but it is possible to find information on the Hollandor. And mm. that evidence of that's overwhelming. So then surprisingly enough, World War One ends and the United States invades Manchuria. So we occupy the western part of Russia with uh, 2,200 troops for the next two years, and nobody knows about that. It's like, when did, when did the United States invade Russia? 
Oh, yeah. 1918 through 1920. Yeah, we had troops over there. I think the actual number was actually 22,000. We had a pretty large force there. But there again, they didn't have any real means of uh, travel. You could you could run ox carts across thousands and thousands of miles of tundra in the summer. And then in the winter, you could run dog sleds. But that was about the limit until they got the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad built. So they had no real presence at that particular point. Um, and moving along, we had World War II, and World War II, there's a, that was definitely a staged false flag event, too. There's a uh, great article online, I think I sent it to you, and maybe you can pull it up in a screen share as you're doing the tape edit for this, and that's uh, FDR's undeclared war in the North Atlantic where four U.S. destroyers had engaged German submarines as as a neutral nation, we were not supposed to be doing that. And we were carrying war materials, so we were not supposed to be doing that. But anyhow, uh, we could send humanitarian aid, but we were doing actual war materials. And so the Germans were, uh, by whatever you want to call rules of war, legally allowed to sink our boats that were carrying that material. And we were in the process of uh, trying to destroy submarines. They sunk the uh, USS um, James Rubin destroyer in October of 1941. So here we are two months before Pearl Harbor, and there was already four attacks on U.S. Uh, destroyer escorts and that actually caused damage to our boats by German submarines. But you never hear anything about that, and nobody else heard anything about that because one of the things that J.P. Morgan did after he got uh, – control of the banking system through the Federal Reserve was that he started buying up U.S. newspapers, and when he couldn't buy the whole paper, he would just go ahead and bribe the editors. And so he had amassed enough of a, of a monopoly news media that he could project or retain whatever he wanted. Now, something else that just recently came out, and there's a video on that. You might want to show a little clip when we do the edit for the uh, webcast, web post. And that is the uh, undeclared war against Japan. Uh, we had set up the American Volunteer Group in China based on the gold that we had smuggled out of China when the Japanese attacked them because that was another world power that we needed to knock down. And so uh, if you trace this all the way back to the uh, G. Edward Griffin, what had happened was that the Europeans greatly desired tea, spices, and silk, which China produced in mass and could ship to them, but China didn't want any products from the West in return, so they demanded payment to be in nothing but gold and silver. So that's what the Silk Road did. It carried trade from China to Europe. It one way was, was expandable products that, expendable products that are, you know, are useless after the after the royal balls and they finished all the tea and the spices and the silk wore out. It's like, well, now we need more. But gold and silver were very uh, frangible and they were very long lasting. So at the time of the opium wars, China had amassed about 90% of the world's gold assets. And so when the uh, Rothschilds and the East Indian Company took over the northern portion of India, they got access to the opium production regions in 1760 
and they set up the worldwide opium trade and they started the opium wars with China because China had outlawed opium and didn't want people, you know, smoking it and sitting around. And the people that were doing that were generally your burglars and thieves and they would pay for stuff with, with gold and silver that they'd stole from the honest Chinese. And the British, in order to continue imposing the opium wars, actually invaded 10 different port cities in China and had complete control over them. So they could bring in all the opium they wanted. They could ship out all the gold that they wanted. They actually uh, funded a guy, and I'll see if I can find his name while we're talking, but they had funded a Chinese guy who uh, claimed to be the second coming of Christ. And, and in 1850, he started a, a revolution in southern China that ended up killing 50 million people. Well, there's a little Holocaust that nobody knew anything about. Uh, his first name, I, you know, nobody can pronounce Chinese that I know, so, but his first name is, uh, starts with an X, and his last name is Hong. I'll find it in a second, but we'll just keep moving along. So, yeah, Hong Quinang, H-O-N-G, X-I-U-Q-U-A-N. Oh, and he word. was, re- yeah, 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 pronounce that word. And so even if you're <laughs> expert in phonics, it's going to be challenging. So there's another 50 million people that we can add to the extermination cycle. And uh, so the um, we were getting to World War II. So it, the Chinese still had a large asset of gold. And Chiang Kai-shek was the ostensible ruler of most of China. And so the Japanese wanted to get the Chinese gold, and they also wanted the Chinese resources. So they invaded northern China in 1937, again under a false flag that the Chinese had blown up a train station and killed a Japanese person or whatever. But, you know, bottom line, it's the same pattern repeated, uh, because why change something that works for you? So... The Japanese were very brutal. You can read Rape of Nanking, where they they killed at least a million Chinese. And the, they had a doctrine where you will live off the land. Well, these places were subsistence farming communities that didn't have enough to live off to begin with. And so there's rampant examples of Chinese cannibalism. And the brutality of the Japanese army is just absolutely insane. Their Unit 731, which we might not get a chance to talk about, uh, was the worst biological experiments in the world up until that time. Absolutely uh, quantum leap beyond anything that the Germans did. But we'll get to that later. So anyhow, we had already set up the American Volunteer Group run by Claire Chenault, and they had shipped them a bunch of P-40 airplanes that the Chinese had paid for in gold. And so the USS Cruiser... Uh, Houston had loaded the gold up along with several other cruisers and ostensibly brought it up to Fort Knox for safekeeping during the war. And so they were taking draws out of that gold supply. And Claire Chenault said, well, we could very easily hit Japan with light bombers on their western coast. And they're they're unprotected. They don't have aircraft batteries, any aircraft batteries, and they don't have fighter protection along their coast because they consider it safe. And so we could sneak attack on Japan. And mm. so FDR signed Joint Board, which is uh, called JB-355. And there's a great video on that. I'll also send that to you, and you can put a link to that when you do your 
pot podcast posting, but it they were going to sell between 99 and 500 Lockheed Hornet bombers, and these were light bombers, but they were certainly capable of reaching Japan from three different airports. And if you look at the way these people do this stuff, most likely we had already cut off steel and petroleum exports to Japan in order to starve their industry, which forced them to go elsewhere, which is why they started invading the Indonesia, because they had oil and iron and coal resources that Japan just didn't have. And so uh, it's highly probable that considering we were dealing with the Chinese embassy, that they knew somebody in one of the embassies, either U.S. or China, that could leak this material. And it's highly probable that the Japanese knew that we were planning a sneak attack on their west coast. And so that's why they decided they would go ahead and do a sneak attack on our west coast. And there again, we knew that we had broken both of their codes, the red and the purple code. We knew exactly when this thing was going to happen. We uh, switched off the radar on Pearl Island that Sunday morning because we uh, needed to do maintenance. So I, what do you have to do? Get in there and dust the dust the tubes on the radar set. On that on know? that Sunday. On that Sunday, yeah, yeah. And we didn't have a single picket. There was no boats that were out there watching that particular area. There were no aircraft that were circling the island to see if there was an enemy presence anywhere. And so they were able to pull a sneak attack because we let them pull a sneak attack. They had four carriers that were stationed north of Hawaii, and we sent all four of our carriers southwest of Hawaii. So they were northeast, uh, they so were northwest, knew? and we were southeast. Sorry, I'm interrupting everybody, you. But... Everybody knew. Read the book Pearl Harbor Betrayed. She... Uh, I'll send you a link on that. But yeah, there's several different books that have gone in complete detail about how we had, we had known and that the uh, administrator of the Pearl Harbor was never notified. So they just hung him out to dry and said, we're going to court-martial you and so anyhow, so that's how we got involved in that. But then going back to the standard theme about we need to uh, make sure this war is prolonged as long as possible. And we need to destroy as many men and, and material as possible on our side in order to make the fight last as long as possible. So there's a great book by uh, William Bartash, B-A-R-T-S-C-H, who's a history professor at Texas A&M, and it's December 8th, 1941, colon, MacArthur's Pearl Harbor. And the airbase at Manila had half of all of the U.S. Air, air assets in all of the Pacific. They had B-17s and they had uh, P-40s. And MacArthur knew from all kinds of even standard radio broadcasts that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. And 12 hours later... He didn't send up a single airplane for a picket. He had all of our bombers fully fueled and lined up on the runway with bombs on board. He had all our fighters fully fueled and lined up on the runway when the Japanese just suddenly popped over the horizon and started bombing the heck out of them. And once you set off a couple of bombers, it's pretty hard to use a runway that's in flames. And so they destroyed half of our air fleet. He uh, snuck off to the south end of the island and managed to get away. And that's why the nickname for him was Dugout Doug, because he was not admired by anybody. And he said, uh, 
I shall return. Yeah, well, that was the next big major mistake they made. So moving over to the East Coast, after we declare war on Germany, FDR did absolutely nothing to secure our coastline. The Germans call it the happy days, or they call it the uh, torpedo turkey shoot. They sent submarines over to the East Coast, and we didn't black out a single city. So we had tankers that were going from the refineries in the Gulf Coast up the East Coast and then ostensibly across to England, and they were sitting ducks because regardless of what the moonlight was, you could pull a submarine up, stick your periscope up, and you could see the silhouettes of the tankers moving in front of the backlights from the cities, all the port cities all across the East Coast. And so they started sinking merchant marines. They sunk over 400 U.S. tankers and killed over 5,000 U.S. Uh, merchant marines before they started putting up effective sub, uh, submarine defense on the U.S. East Coast. There's one account of a German submarine being damaged, and that was a guy who was a 17-year-old kid that was in the Civilian Air Corps. He was a Boy Scout, and they were offering badges for flight time, and so he had been uh, signed off to solo in a Piper J-3, and he was flying out uh, off the coast of the uh, United States, and he saw a German submarine in the water, and so he radioed in, and they sent a Coast Guard clipper over, and they dropped a depth charge, and they damaged the submarine. But that's a pretty much the extent of what our response was to sinking over 400 tankers on our coastline. So that just gives you an idea of how they want to prolong the war. After Midway, which was in 1942, uh, there were two proposals. One was to go island hopping all the way from Australia all the way up to Japan. And then the uh, director of the Navy said he had an alternate plan. Since we had already secured Midway, it was a very short, and we had air superiority by sinking the uh, majority of the aircraft carriers that Japan had. We had the ability to go over and take Okinawa at that time, and then that would have been a pincer that Japan would have not been able to stop. We'd have been able to bomb all of their shipping lanes and all of their ports north and, and uh, uh, in Japan, and then all of their ports for deliveries of raw materials and, and uh, finished products and soldiers to the south. So we could have cut them off in 1943 and ended the war, but they didn't want to do that. So meanwhile, in the European theater, Patton uh, attacked Sicily, and they managed to get a foothold on uh, Italy. And uh, September 23rd, the Italian army revolted, and they captured Mussolini. And they said, we will uh, defect from the Germans and we will join the Americans and British to defeat the Germans. And at that point, the Italians had 900,000 troops on the Eastern Front in uh, uh, fighting Russia who could have either surrendered or, you know, joined the Russian army to attack the Germans. And uh, the Italian peninsula has a spine of mountains running down the center with very few passes that cross across it. So basically, you've got two different coastlines that are separated by this high ridge of mountains down the middle. The Italians said, look, to keep from having inter-fratside uh, involvement, we will take either the east or the west side of the Italian uh, peninsula, and you take the other side, and with the Americans coming up one side and the, and the 
uh, allies coming up the other, we'll be able to beat the Germans handily. There was 900,000 Germans and there was 900,000 Italians on the Italian peninsula. But our uh, general staff decided that wasn't a good idea. Eisenhower didn't like that idea. So Patton knew about that. And he had Patton had plenty of uh, Italian Americans in his army, and they were very familiar with the you know the Italian people. And so, we tried every way he could to get the uh, Italians to be accepted as allies. But that would have ended the war two years too soon. So then we end up over in uh, D-Day. What they don't tell you is about a uh, exercise that they were planning prior to D-Day, slapped in sands where they killed 1,700 sailors just practicing landing, and they just buried their bodies on the beach. And then two days later, when Normandy happened, they dug the bodies up and moved them over to Normandy and said, well, these guys just died on the beaches of Normandy. No, actually, they died from friendly fire on our own beaches. That's an interesting little piece of history that nobody wants to know. But then they stationed Patton because he was the most feared uh, Allied general. They stationed him in eastern England with a bunch of uh, Goodyear inflatable tanks that, you know, from the air looked like real tanks. And he rode around and did speeches to all of the civic clubs in England selling war bonds. And so the Germans were pretty sure that he was going to invade in Calais. And that was another false flag. But they kept him out of action until they actually had established the beachhead. And then they weren't able to move forward at all. The troops were just not inspired by the leadership of Eisenhower and Marshall and uh, Montgomery. So they invited Patton back and immediately he swept around the German army. He had them uh, 250,000 Germans along with all of their equipment trapped in the western part of France and he had a 25 mile place called the Felice Gap. And had he been able to close that gap, there would have been no Battle of the Bulge but he was ordered to let the Germans retreat from that surrounded pocket back to their um, Western front so that they could um, be prepared for the December 1944 Battle of the Bulge. So that's a pretty ugly little chapter. And then all the time that the war was going on, FDR had admitted when the Iron Curtain fell, we knew that he had over a thousand NKVD spies from Stalin inside his administration who were working with 2,000 dedicated Fabian socialists because they thought communism was great. Hey, Walter Durrani at the New York Times said he went out to Ukraine and everybody was happy. Nobody was starving out there in the 1930s. He won a Pulitzer Prize for that. So, you know, this is the way, if you own the news media, you can pretty much convince people that the, the world is flat. It worked for a thousand years, but, you know, and you can convince them that a benign three-atom gas molecule controls the entire temperature of the planet. Mm. When, yeah, a, a planet that has 310 million cubic miles of ocean and 259 billion cubic miles of mostly molten rock is controlled by 400 parts per million of a benign gas that is mandatory for life. So you can make people believe damn near anything, which is the sad state that we're in, which is really why we're in this this total tyranny at this point. But there's an enormous movement 
of truth. And that's one of the things I was doing this weekend was attending some truth events. And then we had a great TNT program. We'll cover that at the very end. So during um, World War II, we had the Lend Lease, which was actually Lend and Never Get Paid For It with uh, Russia and England to supply them with war materials. The English ended up paying for some of their Lend Lease and they were they were still rationing gasoline and cloth and food in until the 1960s because their their economy was just completely destroyed. Now there was a guy that was in the U.S. Army. His name is Major Jordan, and there's a great Vimeo V-I-M-E-O um, video on that, and we'll put a link to that too. But he was the one that was in charge of sending the war material that the uh, Stalinists wanted. And they wanted virtually everything. And he did about a 45-minute long presentation at Rotary Clubs all across the United States. One of them was recorded, and the introduction to that is done by G. Edward Griffin again. But the amount of war material, including <laughs> uranium, and the plans to the uh, nuclear weapons development program were all shipped to them, along with, you know, countless amounts of war material. And uh, it's really staggering when you hear this. But one of the things that happened was that when the war was over, there was a guy that was on Okinawa that was in charge of the war materials that were there. We were stockpiling tanks and uh, artillery pieces for the potential invasion of Japan which was uh, offset by the explosion of the nuclear bombs. And so they had this war material there, and they brought the transport ships back, and they were loading them up. And the guy says, well, I guess we're sending all this stuff back to America. And the guy said, no, we're not. He goes, what do you mean we're not? He says, well, we're sending half of this to Korea and the other half to Vietnam. He goes, my God, Korea and Vietnam. He goes, yeah, that's where the next two wars are going to be. It's like, oh, okay, so we'll pre-position the surplus from one war so that we can start the next war. So there again, you have a pattern that's going to be pretty much repeated. Go ahead. I feel like you have ignored a pretty big false flag that happened in Germany during the Second World War. Uh, The Reichstag fire or the (laughs) attack on the radio station with Poland or Kristallnacht. (laughs) I mean, you know, you can't cover every false flag if you, if you stay here a week. So anyhow, yeah, then we have a few false flags that happened in recent history in the United States. We had the uh, David Koresh, uh, Janet Reno, Davidian Branch Roast in Waco, Texas. Now, here's a guy that had 80 followers in, in a commune that was west of Waco. And every Wednesday morning, he went to Walmart and bought several hundred dollars worth of supplies. And it was usually him and one other person. And they would load up the car and drive back to uh, the compound. So rather than arrest this dangerous Christian right winger in a situation where it's completely harmless, they decided that they would storm his uh, poorly built stockade out on in the west side of town and that this happened in february of 
1993. Janet Reno had just been approved as the Attorney General of the United States, and one of the first things she did was she fired 92 of 93 uh, assistant U.S. Attorney Generals. So these are the people on the local district level that prosecute all federal crimes. And so she fired all of them, and that meant that we wouldn't find out the information on Iran-Contra, another group of false flag stuff, the drug smuggling from Nicaragua into the El Toro Air Force Base in California, which was exposed by Gary Webb with uh, uh, Mercury News, the uh, MENA Airport stuff, which was directed by Slick Willie, otherwise known as uh, uh, William Jefferson Clinton and his lovely wife, Reptillary. So anyhow... Yeah, I don't have much respect for these people because they don't deserve it. So anyhow, they uh, surrounded this uh, place and they bombarded them for with uh, rock music and uh, lights and all kinds of stuff. And there was gunshots exchanged. And finally, when they attacked, I think it was uh, April 19th, but it was the same day that they did the... Uh, Oklahoma City bombing two years later in commemorance of this. But anyhow, supposedly they attacked, and there was four ATF agents that were killed, and all four of them were killed by friendly fire. And amazingly mm. enough, all four of them had been bodyguards in uh, Arkansas under Clinton. The four um, ATF agents had been... Uh, bodyguards for Clinton when he was in Arkansas. So they could obviously had some stories to tell, but they were promoted to a federal job with the ATF where their salaries and benefits increased. And then just months later, they were dead. And then a month after that, there was a helicopter crash where four more ATF agents were killed. And they also had been Clinton bodyguards. Funny how that happens. So then there's two different lines of thought about what was going on in the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, Veterans Today did some pretty good coverage on the amount of damage you can do with ammonium nitrate diesel mixed fuel bomb. And those are pretty limited amount of explosive power. And so they think it was probably C4 that did it and that there was multiple charges placed inside the building. Probably one of them went off and then two of them did not. And so there's evidence that the FBI went in and removed those two devices because if they went off after the event, then it would be pretty obvious that it wasn't a truck bomb that did it. But there again, you had the Waco event where they were trying to frame white Christians as being this radical group of uh, uh, insurgents. And then you had Timothy McVeigh, who was uh, ostensibly involved, but he was also a probably a CIA asset, and he was ostensibly involved in white supremacy acts. And so they were still trying to frame this narrative. Now, the evidence that was destroyed, in addition to, I think it was 168 people killed at uh, Oklahoma City, but according to Dr. Um, Sherry Tenpenny, they had moved all of the files from the Gulf War Syndrome um, diseases among veterans from all of the various locations to the Oklahoma City FBI building for some oddball reason, and all those records got destroyed, which 
happens every once in a while. And then all of the uh, evidence on the MENA and the El Toro uh, Iran-Contra material was also stored in that uh, Ed, Edward Murrow building, and so it got destroyed. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with some people that, that are blatant criminals, number one, but they're also experts at covering their own particular tracks. So moving along, 1993, right before she fired the U.S. attorneys, we had the bombing of the F, uh, World Trade Center in New York, and they had lined up a patsy and they said, we're going to deliver a van full of material and we're going to give you a fake cell phone and we're just doing a drill to find out uh, if it would be possible to blow up one of these buildings. And so the guy was uh, an FBI asset. He, vid he audio taped the FBI explaining to him what was going to happen. They tried, tried him in court and he brought up the defense that the FBI had framed him and delivered actual explosives and an actual detonator device, and it was a total inside FBI job. And so he was he was acquitted. And so then we can move on to the other stuff about the World Trade Centers, which I'm a real expert on. Okay, so bottom line is uh, in 19, I mean, in 2019, 18, I was contacted by Robert David Steele to be uh, write a report to the president. This is a memo to the president, includes 28 authors. And uh, he said that you couldn't write more than 800 words because Trump will not read anything that's more than two pages long, and you have to include a picture. So here's the report that I sent to the president this is uh, dated July 8th of 2018, but this is my report that I sent him. It has a nice picture of pyroclastic flow pouring out of the Twin Towers. You can see it coming out of both of them there. It's uh, pretty, pretty stunning. But anyhow, so I didn't get any response from that, and neither did uh, Robert David Steele, who interviewed me on that particular subject. And then the next year, I was getting ready to be a guest on Coast to Coast AM. They had previously interviewed Judy Woods and Richard Gage on uh, what happened to the World Trade Center buildings. And I had attended three events with Richard Gage and had sat with him during dinner twice. And so I thought, well, maybe Coast to Coast will let me cover this. And so I wrote another article called Unequivocal 911 Nukes. This was posted at Veterans Today. It goes into more detail than, than Fetzer's capable of doing <clears throat> on the structural building elements. And uh, I was contacted by one of my readers, and they said, you need to read the Palmer Report. So I pulled up the Palmer Report. I uh, was stunned by the amount of information. I forwarded it to veterans today. They posted it as breathtaking solving nuclear 911, the Palmer Report. And so, our, and uh, if you look at these photos, you can see the red arrows indicate 110-story tall buildings. Off to this side, you have a 47-story tall building that's just basically flush with the ground. And then this building that's rectangular with the hole in the center, that's building six. And it wasn't hit by an airplane. It had a billion-dollar uh, supposedly bullion stored in the basement vault. The fireman went down there. The vault door was open. There was tracks on the floor where a uh, front loader and 
dump truck had loaded the whatever material was in there and hauled it off, and then it, it mysteriously burned. So their hypothesis, and the same one that I've been working on, is that these buildings were brought down by nuclear demolition. They've got 50 PowerPoint slides, and uh, they've got three 90-minute videos that explain those particular things. Okay. Yeah, so then I wrote uh, exposing the NIST Jenga game. NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Okay, two days after the World Trade Center collapsed, there was a guy who was one of the um, board of directors with the American Society of Civil Engineers <clears throat> authored a paper about, yes, these buildings absolutely came down because they had a failure in the exterior wall support system and the whole 110-story, 1,350-foot-tall buildings, both of them fell in 14 seconds. And it's like, how in the world would you know because the the pile is still smoldering nobody's done any forensics on it you're just watching the tv news and telling us that the building fell down in 14 seconds because you knocked out a couple of exterior columns it was preposterous well that's the same proposal that fema presented in january of 2002 and then they got so much pushback on it that they ended up forming the 911 commission and you know so bottom line that brings us forward to the woo flu stuff and I've studied that uh, again extensively. And Gen Six. And Gen Six. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're monsters. And so, <laughs> bottom line, what we try to do is we've tried to present a picture of a group of people who, you know, for whatever reason, because they're incestuous blue blood, or for whatever reason, they've decided that they have uh, jurisdiction over the whole entire planet, and anything they do to us, uh, we deserve. Mm. And so, yeah, so so they're they're absolutely shameless in the amount of things that they do. And a lot of people just go, well, nobody's evil enough to concoct a poison and force billions of people to take that poison. Well, you know, we're just looking at another uh, Jonestown massacre. You know, uh, you can drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And, and people are drinking the Kool-Aid because they've had a lifetime of exposure to the news media that tells them that, pharmaceuticals are wonderful and that doctors are the you know the saints of the planet and that every everything the government does is wonderful well it's not you know and so bottom line is <clears throat> i immediately got involved in the truth movement and the open texas movement so i attended rallies in austin uh and met there there again del big tree uh alex jones was at a half dozen of the events that i went to um there was one event that was pretty memorable and it, I wrote an article at Principia Scientific called Remember the Alamode Review. Yes, the woman in Dallas uh, had no PPP protection. She had no payment for employees. And she had a hair salon with 18 hairdressers. And these ladies had not made a dime in over two months. They were starving to death. And she said, well, the governor said we can cut hair on Monday, but I'm opening my salon on Thursday. So she started cutting hair in her salon on Thursday. <clears throat> she was promptly arrested by the uh, authorities in Dallas County, which are, amazingly enough, three Ivy League uh, graduate uh, affirmative action token people that are in there basically to turn it into a Democratic enclave. And 
They never found and prosecuted a single person that delivered pallets, loads of bricks for the Antifa riots. And they allowed anybody that did less than $1,000 worth of damage to be released uh, with no charges. And so they basically allowed the uh, riots that, that destroyed large parts of Dallas. But anyhow, at this presentation, there was a Dallas doctor, Yvette Lozano, and she said that she had treated all of her staff with hydroxychloroquine, and she had treated 30 patients. And at that point, the state licensing board went up, up apoplectic, and they said, well, we're, we're going to go ahead and revoke your license. Well, there was enough doctors in Texas that pushed back on that that they said, okay, uh, we'll make sure that the pharmaceutical board doesn't allow pharmacists to fill prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine. And so they tried applying pressure on that. So in my article, <clears throat> I'm very negative about the uh, American Medical Association, which was also part of this particular crime syndicate, and the state licensing board for doctors and pharmacies. And amazingly enough, my article was published in the Texas AMA Journal, but as apparently there's some people in Texas that are not real happy with the way the doctor's board uh, rules over them and doesn't allow doctors to practice medicine. So like I said, I've been to dozens of events. I've met in person all of the big name players. I uh, met Judy Makovitz and um, Dr. Fleming, uh, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Bartlett, Dr. Artis, you know, everybody that was in Texas at events, I went to as many events as possible. Now, I also wrote an article called The Right to Try Voodoo because the president had passed an act called the Right to Try Act. And, yeah, this is nothing new because what happened is they passed a law in Colorado in uh, 2014 saying that if the FDA didn't approve something, you had the right to go to a jurisdiction that did approve it and try alternatives. And this was such a great idea that it was proposed in the Texas legislature in 2015, soundly defeated by the lobby, opposed, uh, uh, introduced again in 2017 in Texas and defeated by the, the pharmaceutical lobby, and then uh, proposed nationally and passed and signed by Trump in 2018 and then in 2019, to just congratulate themselves on what a wonderful job they did, the rhinos in Texas decided they would pass the Right to Try Act in Texas. And what do you have the right to try? You have the right to try whatever the FDA wants to try experimental humans on with no repercussions to the pharmaceutical industry or the doctors that prescribe whatever it is. And the interesting part about this, this is my opening little paragraph, two Australian scientists, Dr. Robert Warren and Dr. Barry Marshall, won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2005 for their pioneering cure of peptic ulcers, the most common human infection, affecting approximately one out of six people on the planet at some time during their life. What's most revealing about this established science is that these gifted doctors made this discovery in 1982. Actually, it was approved by the Australian government in 1982. Uh, Dr. Marshall and Warren discovered this in 1978, that if you have H. pylori bacteria in your stomach, it will eat your food. It releases highly acidic waste, which eats your stomach lining. And so they uh, applied to the Australian government for human testing, and the Australian government said, no, we're not going to let Everybody knows it's from eating acid foods. They, you know, we're not going to let you do that. And so 
Dr. Marshall infected himself with H. pylori, said, now I've got uh, peptic ulcers. Now I'm going to cure myself with a $5 antibiotic. The Australian government goes, okay, we'll let you do human testing for four years, but half the people get placebos so you don't cure them. Okay, fine. They approved it in 82. Uh, the FDA approved it in 1992 because they would rather sell you Pepto-Bismol or Maalox your whole entire life than to ever cure you. A healthy person is not a customer for Big Pharma. And so that's exactly the way these guys roll. We'll just do with one, one final uh, document that I wrote. Wu Flu Bats 2 News for You. This is at Principia Scientific. And one of the, the lead quotes is, hydroxychloroquine decalcifies the pineal gland. It also decalcifies the uh, pituitary and the thyroid glands. And they get calcinized because you have to have iodine in order to make a functional immune system and hormones. And it happens to be a halogen, which is period seven in the uh, chemical chart, along with fluoride and chlorine. So if you're ingesting fluoride and chlorine, then you're also displacing the fluoride, I mean, the iodine that your body needs. And so bottom line is uh, I've tried at Principia Scientific where I've got 60 articles and I've tried as a guest host on TNT radio since January to promote as much truth as possible and, uh, you know, inform people because it's far harder to be led by false flags if you understand the real history and the real science. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to educate people. Joe Olson, where can I follow you? Uh, slangfakescience.com is one of my sites. And um, that's probably the best way to do it. You can also follow us on TNT Radio. We have a program called Sky Dragon Slang, which is on uh, Saturday evenings. And we have great guests. We did a great program on re-educating people last night with uh, Gloria Moss and uh, Sarah Pumley, who are two English educators and uh, very informative about how we can correct the educational system. So, yeah, trying to do as much as I can. Thank you for joining me in the trenches, Joe Olson. Oh, God bless you, sir. My name is Jim. This oh. is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com. 